Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to Real Estate Milestones. Today, we have a very special guest. We have Brooke Sheldon, who is a social entrepreneur, researcher, active real estate investor, psychotherapist, founder of Real Estate Trend Shark, and author of Fearless Real Estate Investing in the Era of Climate Change, which is the book that I've read. Got right here in front of me if you're looking or if you're watching on YouTube. Um, great book, which we're going to discuss today in detail. But first, uh, Brooke, thanks for coming on the show. You're very welcome, Ben. Glad to be here. Great. So if you're looking for the book, it's going to be under B.L. Sheldon, the cool pen name of, of Brooke. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's a, we're going to address a lot of topics in climate change, including um, the risk associated with it. Should we still be investing in real estate? Um, what's going to, the effect's going to be on the energy and the debt markets and other things like that, especially with why the air conditioning might be so poor in New Orleans. That might be something we talk about too. But um, to start, uh, Brooke, what is your first milestone in real estate? Um, that's a great question, Ben. Actually, my first milestone in real estate came kind of late. I was actually like 28 the first time I invested in real estate. Um, and it was my own home. And I really had no prior knowledge of real estate other than, oh, you know, the American dream is that, you know, you buy your own home. And so I did that because my company was growing and I needed to start, you know, residing in several different cities. I started acquiring real estate in other cities and then began to realize, hey, you know what, when you sell this stuff, you make money. And so that's when I realized maybe I should figure out a little bit more about why it is you make money. And so that's how it all started. Awesome. And so um, you also do some other things besides real estate. I'd love to hear about what you do professionally a little bit, but most importantly, how does your background as a psychotherapist influence your investing in real estate and, and what you do on, on that front? Well, that's that's an interesting question too, Ben, because you know so often when people are investing in real estate, their real estate is very separate uh, from other aspects of their lives. It's kind of like you know their hobby on the side or their their you know cash flow on the side or whatever it is. But you know when it when it comes to I am a management consultant, I'm a business consultant, I I and a success coach for individuals. Um, but then in addition to that, I do real estate consulting for people as well. But how I came actually to all of those things was because I am a you know, trained psychotherapist. And so one of the things that was intriguing to me is that a lot of times when you're dealing with entrepreneurs and individuals in business, there's a lot of anxieties and stressors that are unique to entrepreneurs that are different than individuals who you know, just go in every day and do what's on their desk to get a paycheck. When you're the entrepreneur, you're constantly having to think about the responsibilities that you have for the people that work for you. You have to think about taking risks, coming up with new concepts, new products, whatever it may be, going out, seeking venture capital, all kinds of things that somebody who's a line employee doesn't necessarily have to worry about. They've got other concerns sitting on their desk. So entrepreneurs are constantly in a, a transitional place. They're always changing. They're bringing in new ideas. They always kind of have a visionary scope of what's coming next. And when that is the way that you look at the world, it means you also have to be willing to accept change. You have to be willing to make changes. You have to be willing to accept that the world isn't always what you want it to be. 
and be prepared to kind of pivot and shift and refocus your direction. And so a lot of times for uh, different entrepreneurs, it becomes a situation where they're worried about how to keep doing that or how to do it in the face of the fact that maybe financially, they're not sure where the money's going to come from for a new concept or a new idea. And my uh, forte, so to speak, is to, I'm a very positive uh, psychology oriented uh, individual. And so I always kind of focus on the positive and get people to look at how they have the ability through their intellect, through their creativity and through their willingness to engage in change that they themselves can be the manifester of the things that they need to have happen. And um, getting people to a place where that confidence resides in them is uh, like pivotal for me. I feel that it's absolutely necessary for people to be able to have that that from within, that self-comfort. And so I make it a point of focusing on those kinds of things when I'm working with somebody who is changing their business practices, maybe going out and seeking a new career, maybe realigning their existing career or their business. Um, and so I, all those things come together at a very pivotal point right now when real estate itself is changing. And people have to start looking at real estate in kind of a, a, a different fashion if they want to continue to be successful, not just today and tomorrow, but five years out and 10 years out and 15 years out and beyond. And if you're if you invest in real estate and you put your money in real estate as a long term investment, or even as, even if you're looking at short term investments, things that you want to you know continue to do like kind exchanges on or M four fifty threes on, you need to be able to be aware of what the future of the real estate is that you're buying, so you can make intelligent decisions about it. Absolutely, um, I think a, a poignant point that I've also learned in the entrepreneurship classes. Or that I've been taking some entrepreneurship classes at school, and the I guess the biggest lesson that I've taken away is that um, the your the way you see the world is not the reality of the world. The world is what it is, and your perspective, while it interfaces with the world, is not the truth of how it might be. Or could be right, could be wrong, but you know you got to sometimes take it out, take a perspective out of yourself to to identify what's really going to be there. So on that note how scared should we be of the future of real estate? You know, that I am going to be the person who's going to tell you there's actually nothing to be afraid of as long as you apply your logic and your thoughtful realizations about the future. So often people only look at where a property is at the moment that they're looking to purchase it. You know, oh, this is what the cash flow is today. This is the cap rate. You know, great. This fits perfectly into my portfolio. Or this is near my home. It's easy for me to be able to go by and check on it. You know, if they're going to do their own property management. People have all kinds of reasons for investing and all kinds of things that set essentially the level of their risk sensitivity. But what I'm saying about real estate is that people have to start readjusting that risk sensitivity in a way that allows them to be able to not just look at today but look at where do I anticipate this real estate is going to be in three years, five years, not just because of my equity position, but also because of what is happening with climate change. And a lot of people think, oh, I don't live on the coast, so I don't have to think about climate change. And I will tell you as somebody who lives in the center of the country that I absolutely have to think about climate change. Prior to just a couple of years ago, there was no such thing we dealt with in the United States called a polar vortex. They dealt with them in Canada, but they didn't deal with them here in the United States. But now the polar vortex is actually coming all the way down when we have one into a much lower area. It's, it's hitting even like the southern parts of Oklahoma and the northern parts of, of Texas. 
Um, we're seeing bomb cyclones. We are seeing in California, nowhere near the coast, we're seeing atmospheric rivers. I mean, Sacramento is nowhere near the coast of California, and yet huge areas of Sacramento were completely flooded in ways that they've never been flooded before. So, yeah. you know, there are just major changes happening everywhere. You know, it's it's becoming colder in the winters in New Mexico and hotter in the summers. So we're seeing changes, we're seeing extremes. People think of climate change as global warming. Well, it's true, the planet overall is warming and that warming is what is causing many of these things. But it's not just, it doesn't just mean that, oh, the planet's gonna get hotter and everywhere is just gonna get hotter and that that in and of itself is the only thing we need to be concerned about. Uh, when I say all that, I need to say unquestionably then that I make it a point in the book of saying, I'm, my, my whole issue in writing this book had everything to do with helping investors understand the influx of climate change and how they could essentially make wiser decisions or protect their portfolio going forward. Nowhere in the book am I attempting to explain why climate change is happening. Uh, some people have religious thoughts on that. Some people have political thoughts on that. Some people have economic thoughts on that. Uh, you know, and, and that could get into all kinds of concept about green growth and degrowth. And I'm not going anywhere in any of those places. All I care about is what kind of impact climate change will have on real estate. I'm not talking about any politicization of it or any religiosity around it. I just want people to know, look, it's coming. You can pretend it's not coming, but it's coming. So might as well be prepared. Even if you want to pretend it's not coming, still prepare, because that's how you protect your investment. You know, it's no different than anything else when you're investing in, you always hedge your bets, whether you're investing in stocks, whether you're investing in bonds, whether you're investing, you know, in, in real estate, whether you're investing in gold, securities, cryptocurrencies, I don't care. You always have to hedge your bets because you always have to be prepared for the fact that the unanticipated can happen. So I don't care if people read the book and choose to think of it as, well, this is just a good preparation for the unanticipatable then go for it, but protect yourself one way or another so you make wise choices. Don't stop investing in real estate. Just be sure that you add wisdom to the way you do your due diligence. Absolutely. That's a great point. And I think that no matter where people's political, cultural, religious leanings are, it is a fact that insurance companies want to charge more for insurance or are charging more for insurance. It's a fact that certain prices in energy and in other parts of the um, economy are changing. I mean, I think that people can just acknowledge the results, if not the causes, which is ultimately what affects the investment. So I guess on that note, what do you, if you could, if this is possible, what would you say the single biggest problem real estate investors are facing related to climate change or maybe that was the single biggest risk if there would be one particular you know, that's a hard one. It's not so much the actual weather event because that changes dependent upon the area that you're in. It's making sure you can get and keep insurance wherever you are. Um, you know, for instance, I, I've known people who will buy a plot of land and they'll think, oh, well, that's, you know, it's great. I don't need insurance on it because I don't have anything. I haven't built a house there yet or anything else. I paid cash for it, so I don't have to worry about it. Because again, if you have a mortgage, you have to have insurance because the bank insists on it. But or whoever the, you know, whoever it is that's holding the mortgage, the mortgager in all cases would be the one who would require that you have insurance. But if you buy something outright, you buy cash, you don't have to have insurance on it. And so because of that, a lot of people think, well, I, I paid for the 
cash for this land. Like, let's say, take some of the areas, um, you know, in, uh, and I'll name some various states, Montana, California, Colorado, um, New Mexico. Let's take some of these places that have these gorgeous, beautiful forests that are, um, you know, Washington State, Oregon, some of these beautiful places, Idaho, that people love to be and love to spend time but the point is, if you buy land there, you have to be prepared for the fact that we have an increase in wildfires right now and wildfire and therefore fire insurance has gone up in all of these different areas. So people can decide, oh, I don't need insurance right now. That's fine. You, you don't if you paid for it cash. But if you're going to build anything on it, a vacation home, um, a rental property that um, that whether you're renting it out as a multi unit or a single family, whatever it is, you're still going to you're putting people in it. You're going to have to insure it. And the minute that you have to insure it, you have to realize that those facts now literally factor in to what your costs are. And that's going to affect your bottom line. And, you know, naturally, if you have a situation where you have a multifamily property, you know, you're, you're balancing at that risk because you have multiple people paying your mortgage for you and splitting the cost of that insurance. But you have to make sure still that you have a positive cash flow, unless you're an investor who invests to not have a positive cash flow, which many do. But most investors do tend to want to see an appreciation of the equity of the property, and they also want a cash flow. And if you want cash flow, you've got to make sure in advance, not just that you think about what a property is costing today, but again, what that property is going to cost when you either, if it, if it already has a rental property on it or it already has a home on it, and you're going to rent it, what that cost is going to be, or if you're going to live in it yourself. Are you comfortable with what you're going to pay in insurance for that property today? And again, three years out, five years out, 10 years out. Fire insurance in a lot of these places is becoming, you know, very, very cost prohibitive for a lot of people to be able to buy, even for even if they're buying it as a rental property, short term rental or long term rental. We're seeing the same kinds of things, yes, on the coast, but we're also starting to see it in areas that otherwise you would not expect to. Areas of the Midwest where wind, not even related to specific storms, but wind themselves have, has become such an issue that it's affecting the property. Or in situations where we're seeing tornadoes now appearing in areas of the country that we have not seen tornadoes appear in over a century. You know, and people could say, oh, well, you know, that's why it occurs once a century. No, not anymore. Something that even occurs once a century now, things that people used to call 500 year flood risks, or 100-year flood risks are now becoming 10-year flood risks and five-year flood risks. So everything is changing. Everything is amplifying. And you, whenever you come into any area, you just need to find out what have been the historic risks. And then now that I know the historic risks, what are the new things that are being recognized and what is anticipated? And once you start to factor in all those things, you can make really responsible choices about buying real estate in a place where you are comfortable with that, that risk sensitivity. Absolutely. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I want to stick a little bit on the theme of insurance because I think it's much less spoken about or understood by many people, however, incredibly important, maybe increasingly risky. So as some people may know or may not know, insurance contracts are year to year. So essentially every year that you own a property, they can be renegotiated, not renegotiated, more like reproclamated by the insurance company onto you. And, you know, when you're like, oh, I got insurance, we're great. How, maybe that's true, but maybe you're, we're not anticipating how insurance may rise. I'm curious, how may I, how may I anticipate what insurance may be not now, but in the future, assuming I'm holding it long-term 
Um, how do I underwrite that? How do I, I guess, stress test my deal to, I guess, to anticipate that? Um, and yeah, I mean, I guess that that's a, a question in itself, just given that um, it might not be easy to predict, but getting some sort of certainty or at least some sort of risk mitigation would be key to protecting yourself in that situation. Uh, you put that beautifully, Ben, when you talked about, you know, the issue of how to stress test your investment. That's exactly what this is. And and every investment should always have a stress test attached to it. You know, you've always, and that's really what I think of as doing the due diligence. So you really know what to anticipate, you know, what has occurred and what may occur. And so often when people talk about due diligence, all they think of is what has occurred or what something is going to cost me right now. But you're right. Part of the stress test is future oriented. So the first thing that I would say is taking, you know, the question that you asked, which again is, is very well thought out, to, to elaborate a little bit more, because I think you're absolutely correct, people do not, you know, have a clear enough understanding of insurance. People think that because they get insurance on a property that, oh, that's great, okay, I got insurance. Well, <laughs> getting insurance and getting a mortgage are very different things. You go out and you can get a mortgage on a property, typical mortgages, as we know in, in, our, in, in American culture, are 15, 30, which is the most typical, 15, 30, 40, you can even get 50, 60, 70 year mortgages. You can even in the United States get 100 year mortgages depending upon the situation and what the, the kind of property is and what it's going to be used for. But at any rate, you can get these extended mortgages, you know, whether you get them at fixed rate or you get them at an adjustable rate, but you kind of have, and we've already seen in our, in our, over the course of the, you know, essentially the last 70 years, if we look going out, we see lots of people who have had adjustable rate mortgages who, when that rate adjusts, sometimes it's to their benefit and oftentimes it's not. And then their payment becomes cost prohibitive and they can't remain in the property. People are accustomed to that with the ideas of mortgages because they think of that mortgage as that long-term debt they have. And as you mentioned, and you're absolutely correct, people take insurance for granted. They somehow think that if I can get a mortgage, I can always get insurance. And such is not the case. Insurance is a very different animal than mortgages are. And when somebody offers a mortgage, people think, oh, well, they've, they've already, you know, whoever the mortgage is, they've already investigated the risk and they were comfortable lending money. Well, six and one half a dozen of another, part of what they're investing in is the property. And the other part of what they're investing in is the person who's going to then be the mortgagee and pay that mortgage. And so one of the things that becomes a difficulty with that is the, the investment is, is not all about the land or the physical property. It's about the person who's taking out the mortgage. And so they're expecting that no matter what happens to that property, you're either going to pay for it, you're going to find some other way of paying for it, or they're going to come back and take it away from you. Now, the key is with relationship to that, that that's why, for instance, it's harder to get oftentimes a mortgage on a rental property or a vacation home than it is to get a property on a primary mortgage. And the reason for that is because they know that one thing is the mortgager knows one thing for sure. If push comes to shove and you don't have enough money, you're going to pay the mortgage on the property you live in before you're going to pay on the rental property or before you're going to pay on the uh, the vacation home. So this, this is factors into their consideration. Why that's relevant here is because it still all comes down to even the mortgager is managing their risk. Why? Because mortgagers have to get their own insurance as well. As, as you know, an entity that loans money, they have their own policies 
that they have to they have to maintain and they have to be able to demonstrate the fact that they have essentially vetted the investments that they're providing money for but the thing is they know that one way or another it's your responsibility to pay it or they take the property back it's not the same with insurance companies insurance companies don't have to give you an insurance policy for 30 years or 40 years or 50 years or 15 years or 100 years they literally will look at their own long-term investment in terms of where they should be putting their money and where they can feel comfortable but insurance companies only insure you for one year. So for instance, I had a client call me uh, just a couple of years ago and say, am I understanding you know, what you have in the book well enough that I could buy this home and even though there's never, you know, the fire insurance around me and everything is all like, you know, typical levels for that area of the country, that if there suddenly was a big fire right nearby me and even if it didn't come near my property, but it was fairly close to me, you know, like one or two houses away and, and it was like a big wildfire that my insurance company could choose to cancel my insurance policy and then I would have no insurance. And I said, yes. And she said, but how can that be? I'd still have a mortgage. And I said, yes. And the insurance company doesn't care about that. And you can't keep the property without the insurance. So you really, you can't keep the mortgage. I mean, that's the thing. Somebody else can come in all cash and not need that insurance because they don't have a mortgager. But these things are very real. An insurance company looks for out for itself. We have to remember that when the depression of the 1929, October 1929 happened, uh, which continued all the way until basically, you know, while it got better and better, it's really World War II that pulled us out of it. We have to remember that insurance companies did incredibly well during that era of time. Mortgagers did not do so well. Banks did not do so well. But insurance companies did very, very well. And the insurance companies, they support each other. In other words, there's not just insurance companies, but there's reinsurance companies. So that if an insurance company is having difficulty, the reinsurance company comes in and backs up what their, essentially what their portfolio says that they're going to cover. And that's why in certain states, for instance, areas of Florida right now, you'll, you're seeing insurers are just leaving the state because they can't afford the reinsurance to keep themselves viable and able to pay the kinds of claims that are happening in light of the increasing number of hurricanes that are happening and the increasing strength of those hurricanes. So insurance is going to protect itself. It's it's there for you, you and you, but more than anything else, you have to have it. But insurance companies very much are still a business as are mortgagers and banks. They are businesses and they are not in the business of protecting you as an investor. They expect you to protect yourself. The banks protect themselves, the insurance companies protect themselves. And that's why I try to get you know, real estate investors to understand all the time. You have to do the same level of due diligence for yourself as an investor, as the mortgager does for itself and as the insurers do for themselves. So you don't have to be extraordinary in your efforts. You just have to pay attention and you just have to do your due diligence. So um, it really does all come down to the fact that insurance is the linchpin because you really cannot, you can't maintain a mortgage without insurance and insurance is not something that is actually in your control at all. So it's really interesting because you got directly ahead of the next point I wanted to bring up. Um, I wanted <laughs> to bring it to a little bit of a hypothetical of okay. given Florida and the hurricanes is you know relevant to me as a person living in New Orleans, but also everyone around the country um, saw this. And um, I have a friend who I like to talk to about insurance a lot. Um, he has some experience in the in the industry, but 
I learned what reinsurance was. I realized that, okay, who was, what, okay, what happens in a hurricane? You know, who gets affected with insurance with regards to real estate, especially. Also learned there's something called, uh, there's catastrophe insurance, which is also backing the insurance companies where the insurance companies have reinsurance. They also have cat, they create these cat bonds, which are portfolios of insurance that then pay out if there's a catastrophe. So hurricane actually creates a reward for some insurance companies. It's really, really right. interesting, really um, weird and backwards. I also had realized that not only are the only reason why people are able to get insurance in this area of Florida that, that just got hit is because the government is backing a lot of the insurance where really the government is using maybe our taxpayer dollars to back these, these insurances, these, these insurance products. And the really the people who lost when there was a hurricane weren't the insurance companies, cause they all had, they were all backed by the taxpayer who made it possible for these companies to even issue insurance. I wonder if that's sustainable, how long can this continue? Um, and, and I, I want to hear your opinion on terms of, um, I guess this is a good segue into the question of how do you select markets based on these considerations? Okay, so first I'll take the, the insurance aspect and then I'll go to the markets issue. When we're looking at how long potentially this can be sustainable, because you're absolutely correct, you know, in those situations you have governments that are coming in and also helping to create a subsistence situation for the insurance companies. Why? Because the last thing that you want is the kinds of headlines that Florida's had recently that insurers are pulling out in droves. Because Even more so, they don't want to lose their taxpayers who are going to exactly, there. exactly, and they don't want people to be thinking, "Oh my God, I don't want to invest there because you know that then I'm I potentially going to lose my property or I'm going to lose my insurance or it's going to be cost prohibitive, all those kinds of things." The point is that when you look at, as you mentioned, how long is this sustainable? It's sustainable as long as there's a tax base that is willing to. to say yes to those things, but it's kind of a, it's kind of a, its own little circle of intimacy. And when I say that, it's because the people that reside in those states or have property as investors in those states, even if they don't reside there, they want those states to, to, to still be able to be thrivable. I mean, to be able to continue to see the advancement in your equity position. Nobody wants to buy a piece of property and see the equity go away. And so they want equity appreciation, which means that they need that equity appreciation to come from people feeling secure, continuing to buy so that prices go up. If prices go up, their equity goes up. So, so it becomes, you know, even though not everybody would want it, the people who would least likely probably want it would be people, for instance, who rent. But at the same time, they need that even if they don't realize that they need their, their landlord to still be able to pay that insurance payment in order to be able to still have a viable place to continue renting to people. So every, when you, as you know, with property, with any, you know, costs that go up affect other aspects of your bottom line. So if you're suddenly paying more for insurance, you know, that money has to come from somewhere. It's either going to come from your monthly profit or it's going to come from another set of bills that you, you know, maybe you're not going to do as much renovation and upkeep on the property because now your insurance costs have gone up $160 a month or whatever it may be, depending upon the size of the property. So it becomes one of those things where everybody needs the government to step in and assist because otherwise if more, if, if insurance companies were to completely pull out, you'd eventually find mortgagers starting to pull out of those states. Mm. So that cycle of one, you know, the mortgage, the being able to get a mortgage, feeding the ability to be able to get insurance, 
being able to get insurance, feeding the ability for mortgage companies and large banks, especially multinational banks, to feel like they can continue providing money to that. You know, you you can always have regional banks. That's true, but regional banks don't have the cash reserves that something like a Bank of America or a Wells Fargo do. And so you also see, still need to have those those you know essentially those mortgage warehouses where a smaller regional bank then turns around and sells its mortgages to larger organizations so that it lessens its risk fiscally. So right. it, it is kind of a, a a vicious cycle, but an intimate cycle. It needs every part of the feeding system needs the other. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, it is an interdependent organization. Real estate is an interdependent kind of enterprise because, you know, just if you take it from a totally smaller context and look at it more as a microcosm, you know, landlords don't buy properties for them to sit empty. Landlords buy properties to get tenants. You can only get tenants if you can make your rents affordable to the people that are in the areas that you purchased the property for. So even in that situation, it all becomes something that has a symbiotic as well as, you know, a, a, a cost necessary kind of relationship to each part of the process. Um, and so whichever part of the process you step into, real estate is an investment. Investments mean money. People expect to make money on them. Everybody in the entire cycle expects to make money on them, except for the tenant. But even the homeowner expects to make money, that money coming in the form, at least uh, in terms of equity and appreciation. Mm -hmm. Equity, appreciation, and principal pay down, for sure, yes, increasing absolutely. the amount of money. Right. Great. And so um, I guess I want to take a step back from insurance and kind of look more holistically at the, um, I guess, the the uh, medley of risks that we have related to environmental um, and, and related climate change and how that um, holistic understanding of these risks informs your um, decision making in terms of what markets to invest in. Obviously, um, there are, and maybe if you have examples of places where you think would be more advantageous, but I think more importantly, what's the approach to taking these into account and selecting an appropriate market. Now that that's a great question. Coming back to that market question, um, you know, Ben, I I'm someone who because again, probably having been a therapist for such a long period of time, I am very conscious of the fact that people make different kinds of decisions, and they usually make different kinds of decisions because of different kinds of internal motivators. And so, what I always say to people when it comes to the issue of where should I invest? People ask me that all the time. Well, where should I invest? Where's the best place to invest? Where's the safest place to invest? And it all comes down to that same issue of risk sensitivity. They do make decisions on the basis of cap rate or cash flow or, you know, oh, this is, you know, near my pro my existing properties or this is a place I like to vacation so I'll buy rental property there or whatever. People make these decisions for a variety of reasons. But the one thing that is imperative is that now you have to start making decisions on the basis of starting to look at what's beginning to happen already in the country. Starting to recognize what kinds of, and even if you're looking outside of the country and you're looking to invest in other areas of the globe, starting to look very closely at, okay, what kinds of changes are already occurring what do those changes mean in terms of how they will affect costs and what kind of costs will I, what can I anticipate? And also what kind of extreme events can I anticipate? Like I said, you know, I've, I've had, I've, not too long ago, I had an investor who said to me that they were gonna invest in an area because, well, they, they only have a 100 year flood risk. And I said to them, okay, 
So I understand that that's the stated principle, but if you talk to any of the insurers in that area to find out what they're anticipating, because again, insurers are looking much more closely. And, and so they're all, no, no, no. But I mean, I was talking to the realtor and the realtor was telling me that, you know, they only worry about floods about once every hundred years. I said, well, that makes sense because the realtor is trying to sell you property. The insurance agent is trying to sell you insurance, but they want to sell you insurance that's based upon the fact that you know what the risks are. And so you need to talk to the people who think about the risk all the time. And that's not realtors. That doesn't mean that realtors can't become you know, proactive negotiators of helping people understand. I mean, I, I have some very good real estate uh, friends and clients who they are very, very transparent with people because they don't want, you know, people to be angry at them for their investments. They want people to make the investment knowing what could they potentially be looking at. So they'll let them know, well, just to let you know, you know, I have noticed that insurance has gone up, you know, 6% in the last year in this area, dependent upon if you're on the leeward or the windward side of the island or whatever it may be you know, the more knowledge that they can pass to their clients, the more comfortable clients feel knowing, okay, you're telling me the truth. You're being transparent. Oh, okay, that's a risk I'm willing to take. But otherwise you oftentimes leave the, you know, the potential client or the potential buyer to their own fears and anxieties. But still, it is always best if you're an investor to look at a market, like let's say you were going to move to, and I'm just, you know, making this up, you were going to move to any time, you know, city in any time, county in any time state. And that's great. You know, and maybe maybe your your sisters will live there for the last 10 years and you're like, you always go to visit her there and you're thinking, God, that's a great place. I'd love to have a place there. Or at least a vacation place that then I can short-term rental an Airbnb or Verbo for the rest of the year. But I would still say that just because you go to visit your sister when you go to visit her doesn't necessarily mean you know everything about the area. So the first thing that you would want to do is just go ahead and look that area up and say, and I, and I and I advise, I give people a list in the book of how they actually should go about doing this. But one of the things that you would look up is anytime, you know, city in any time county in any time state, climate change. And then see, is there a climate change plan for that city? You wanna hope that there is. If you don't see a climate change, um, you know, plan for the city, or you don't see that the city council is talking about climate change, my first comment to you, or as there are some cities in the United States where they actually say that climate change does not exist, the first thought on my mind is, uh-oh, I'm not putting my money there because they're not planning. I don't care if somebody plans that, you know, oh, okay, you know, in 12 years, we may see a higher than average rainfall. But show me that you've done some research. Show me that you're paying attention as a city. Show me that I can trust the fact that I don't have to be doing this all by myself. Then if you but then find that, okay, looks like they're paying attention to the risk and they're mitigating that risk appropriately, then get on the phone with an insurance agent, start chatting with an insurance agent who's well-reviewed in the area. I'd look up a couple of them. I'd talk to different ones, not just one. Make sure that I'm getting the same information. Stick with the one who gives you the most accurate and transparent information. Then I'd say to that, that you know, individual, I'd say, are there any realtors that you work with? Because well, if you've got a, an insurance agent who's transparent and willing to talk to you honestly, then you want to talk to the realtors that they're dealing with, because that means those realtors are being realistic. And one of the things that I would always say to do is go to Google. It's easier if you search it this way. Go to Google, look up, you know, anytime city, any county, you know, anytime state, whatever it is that you want to look up, and then say in the Google search. So anytime city, 
insurance journal. Don't put quotations around it or anything else. The insurance journal, which is the primary journal for the insurance industry in a laity format, it's written in a way that's digestible. A lot of times, a lot of the articles from insurance journal will appear in major periodicals. That is a really good place to go look because that's the insurance company. I mean, that's the insurance industry talking to insurance people, not just agents. It's talking to people in all realms of insurance. So the insurance journal is a good place to go. I say to go out on Google and look up the topic you want to and then insurance journal because you'll get a broader search than if you just go to insurance journal itself and use its search bar. So this way you get in through some of the you know back doors or you'll get an opportunity to see something where something is mentioned that it might not have come up in the heading. But then start to pay attention to what you see. But let's say, for instance, Ben, that you were looking it up and you were to see that, oh, I'm looking at Anytime City. And it does say that in the past, they've been seeing floods, you know, once a century. And now recently they begin seeing floods, what was once a century, once every 75 years. So, okay. And then when was the last flood? Oh, the last flood was 17 years ago. So that you might look at that and go, okay, my sister's been living there for the last 12 years. There hasn't been anything. There hasn't been a flood in 17 years. It's no longer a century long that they're thinking. They're thinking 75. If I even hedge my bet and say 50 years, and since they had one just 17 years ago, it's probably a pretty good bet. I could consider investing there for the next 10 years and not really see a problem with my investment. And if I do start to notice the waters are getting a little bit higher, that there's a little bit more rainfall, then maybe I'll go ahead and sell. But maybe I'd do that, you know, seven, eight years out before I see that there's any kind of detrimental effects to my property. That's what I mean by hedging bets. And that's what I mean by looking at the data, looking at the data. And as we always do as real estate investors, trying to then take the data that I'm seeing and weigh what that means for my investment. So it doesn't mean that just because it's gone from 100 years to 75 years, oh, no, can't buy now. If they just if they haven't had one in 17 years, there's still probably a lot of time left. It doesn't mean that they're not going to have extreme rain events. That doesn't necessarily mean they're going to have a flood. So then you just start paying attention, you know, and that's the way that you kind of make the decisions about how to do the investment. That's really helpful. I really appreciate the practical thing that we can actually do, the practical step that we could take, but also put it in the context where right? Like, yes, there are concerns, there are fears, but here is how to stay informed. And here's the approach holistically in terms of how to mitigate this risk and how to move forward and decide, which is honestly, as we mentioned right at the beginning, you know, if we could create, build that confidence and, and mitigate that fear by mitigating that risk, that's going to give us the certainty and the, um, you know, ability to move forward confidently and also succeed in our, in our goals. So appreciate that. Um, definitely. But on that note, I'm curious, could you give us um, an anecdote, a story, a personal experience of when climate change may have affected one of your investments? Um, just to give us kind of illuminate the many forms that this could come in and kind of, you know, even with this mitigating of risks, there are things that are inevitable, but we, there's ways to solve these problems. And I'm curious just to, to see a little bit more, uh, get a little inside look into how, how you've dealt with it before. Absolutely. Um, I, I had a property and, you know, and I do mention this in the book and it was actually kind of my wake up call. Um, Cause naturally I had heard about climate change. We'd all been hearing about climate change, global warming, all this stuff's going to happen. And so it was in the news, but you know, until something becomes, as you're pointing out, a reality in our lives, it's abstract. You know, it's, it's something that we can't really relate to. It, it does not have a, 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 a solidified and kind of visceral context in our world until it does. 
And so what ended up happening for me is I had a, a property with uh, that I owned with several of my partners and uh, we had a great insurance agent. Tony could always find us a great deal. And he was really, really consummate at his work. And he called us one year and he said to me, I'm just really, you know, I'm having pro a problem. I can't, I couldn't get a renewal with the insurance company you guys have been with for the last several years. And now I've been going out and trying to get you a competitive rate to replace that. And he said, I'm really having difficulty and I wanted to let you know. And it was about two months out still till we were supposed to renew. And so we were like, well, what's going on? Because we knew we had not had any claims on the property. The, there was nothing unusual that had changed over the course of the year or anything else. So he said, well, it has to do with climate change. And, you know, I, honestly, this was probably, I think it was about 2000, I want to say 2012, 2013. And I, and I remember saying to him, what? Climate change? That's like way off. What do you mean that it's about climate change? I mean, I could not even fathom that those words were coming out of his mouth as a reason why he was having difficulty getting us insurance. And he said, well, the thing is that, there, you know, there's in the area, there's been a lot more storms, there's been a lot more wind, you know, there, there's been a lot more rain and that, and he said, for any building over 50 years of age. Now, you know, that may sound like a long time, but when you think about it, that just means a building potentially built in the 1970s. That's not really all that long ago. And he said, for any building that's over 50 years of age, he said, they're not wanting to insure buildings that of that age and older, a lot of insurance companies are pulling out of the market for those properties because there's been so much wind damage. And so it was not an area that saw tornado tornadoes or anything else. Um, I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. We don't, we've never had any wind damage. We've never had any claims for anything like that. And he's all, I know it doesn't have to do with you. It has to do with the general area and like the five zip codes surrounding you and the amount of claims that they've had to deal with. He said, and they're just not willing to do that with properties that are, you know, old, older than 50 years of age. So he said, I'm going to keep looking. I'll find you something. I promise. You know, he said, but, it, you know, I can't say yet what kind of costs we're looking at. Well, that just blew me away. It really did because it suddenly made it very real. We didn't have any claims for it, but it was suddenly a reality that I had to factor into my budget sheet. I had affected my profit and loss on that property. So my partners and I discussed it and we were like, how can this be and everything? Now, there's no two ways about it. Tony was able to come back to us a couple of weeks later and he had gotten a policy for us, but it wasn't a 20% increase. So, I mean, naturally, where's that increase going to go? It's either going to come out of the pockets of my partners and I, or it's going to get passed to the tenants or a little bit of both. I can't tell the electric company or the gas company or the water company, oh, sorry, I have to give you 20% less because I have to pay a higher insurance bill. It's got to either come into raised rents or it's going to come in depleted profits or a little bit of both. And in our case, it was a little bit of both. But what ended up happening was, I tell you, I was really glad we had that policy because just a couple of months later, uh, literally just two blocks away from us, a building of approximately the same age was hit. I mean, I remember the sound, the explosive sound. It sounded like there had been like a missile landed in the neighborhood. And mm -hmm. what it was was a building almost identical to our own um, was just, like I said, two blocks down. And it had been hurt, hit with something called a microburst which is when there's a downdraft of air, not doesn't have anything to do with the tornado, doesn't have anything to do with the storm or anything else. It's just an atmospheric irregularity that can occur that causes a downdraft of air that literally just 
blows down. And so instead of the way you would think of like a, you know, think of like a nuclear blast, which is going to blow up into a mushroom cloud, it blows down into like a mushroom cloud. And luckily at the time, there was only one woman in that building at that time when it hit. And she was actually on the third floor. It was a three-story building. And she was actually on the third floor. And a friend of mine lived in that building and said that literally she was just pulling up to the building at the point that it happened. And literally there was a woman on the third floor who was standing and like looking over her balcony was gone. Her apartment was like open and exposed. All of the, all of her walls were gone. And she was like staring out literally like in shock. Like it's amazing that she was alive and, and everything, you know, on that third floor was gone, but it had also gone down through the building. The building was made of brick and mortar, but it had been standing for like at that point, you know, over 50 years. And it was it was in a, a compromised position. So the fire department came out, the whole building, you know, every, there was parts of the building all over the street and everything else. They had to go ahead and, and you know, move everybody out. This was a guy who he had bought this building. He had paid it off years before. He was doing nothing but making pure profit on it every single month. Bam, gone. And I was really glad because when he had come up in the same situation, where they were, he was having difficulty getting insurance, he just decided, well, I don't have a mortgage and he blew off getting insurance. And so there was nothing to cover him when this loss occurred. And so between having to pay contractors to assess the damage, he, because it was a building that was over 50 years of age, it had lead, it had asbestos in it, asbestos in it. He had to pay for the city's cleanup of the area. He, in addition, had to, you know, pay out tenants early on leases. He had to house tenants during the period of time. So he was out all this money. And in the end, all he could do was sell the property at a salvage price. Mm, that's unbelievable. Prior to that would have probably been worth about $900,000 prior to that event. That's that's incredible. That's, that's I mean, two, it's only down the street from you. So, I mean, and I'm glad that you got insurance, but that's yeah. a shame for him. But it definitely puts into perspective. And I didn't even know a downdraft of wind could have an effect right. on a property, <laughs> like yeah. period. Yeah. So that's pretty it, incredible. It affected the other properties around him, but just barely. You know, they just had like, you know, an awning fly off or whatever. No, it was only his property. And it was, it just almost sheared off one whole side of the upper part of the building. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, so one more piece of this puzzle that I want to put together before um, we head into the lighting round is um, not only, I guess we've talked about how insurance is obviously uh, operating our costs that's on your um, profit and loss statement. There's other costs associated with climate change. We've kind of touched on in terms of maybe you need a contractor to fix things. Maybe you need to, you know, there's that. Yeah, obviously there's many other pieces of it. Another piece of it is the utilities, the energy costs. I'm curious to see how is energy cost changing? How's that, um, how's climate change affecting that? How does it, go into your, your thought process maybe if this is, would be a great time to touch on the air conditioning um aspect that you've mentioned in your in your book which is one of the things that blew me away just because i was like why am i never why is it never get cold in my house in new orleans and um so i'm curious to just touch on some of some of that aspect too as a, a line item on the profit loss absolutely ben um you know we in a situation where when the climate changes, any kind of change, you know, when we go from spring to summer, from summer to winter, you know, or to fall, um, we do see changes in how people use the heating and air conditioning apparatuses of their home. Um, so when we stop and evaluate, for instance, that if like when we mentioned the air conditioning issue that you and I both understand only too well, um, <laughs> 
you know, when you have a property that exists, say, in a humid climate, um, you will find that when it gets very warm in the summer, people want to be able to come home at the end of their day or, you know, their end of their class day or their the end of their work day. And they want to be able to turn on their air conditioner and bam, have it just get nice and have that real sense of refrigeration. I mean, that is, after all, what air conditioning is. It's refrigeration. Um, and so what began to happen was uh, we would have, you know, tenants that would be complaining about, oh, my apartment isn't getting cold enough or whatever. So we had a very responsible, reliable heating and air conditioning, uh, you know, firm that would come out and like, you know, twice a year, check all of our stuff, make sure everything was operating well before we would go into the kind of extreme seasons of summer and winter. And, um, and so we called them out and said, oh, you know, we had a couple of clients, um, a couple of, pardon me, a couple of tenants that are complaining about it's not getting cold enough. And there was one tenant specifically was just like, oh my God, it's always so hot in my apartment, la, 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 la. And I, I turned it down and I have it like at 72 and it's like never 72 in here. It's always in the eighties. And, and so this isn't working. And everything. so, you know, naturally you're calling out your appliance repair person. If, if they can charge you for something, it they're going to, you know, it's business, you know, I mean, they may do something occasionally as gratis work, or they may give you a discount on coming out to, to, you know, do a service call or whatever, but overall, if they have to repair something, they're going to charge you for the repair. And they kept coming out saying, there's nothing wrong with that air conditioner. It's working fine. And so, you know, they, you know, call and tell me and I'd call the tenant back and say, oh, they, they went in, they said it's working fine. And so at first my thought was, oh, it's working fine. They repaired it. But then I noticed that all I was getting was a service call, not any repair cost. So, and the tenant just kept coming. No, no, it's so hot in here and everything. So then I went ahead and I called the, the appliance repair guy back and I said, do me a favor. Okay. Can you have the technician who went call me? Cause I need, need to be able to explain to the tenant why, you know, they're not getting the temperature range that they're seeking. So I said, yeah, y'all, I'll have him call you, but I can tell you why. Cause yours is not the only apartment where we're dealing with this. We're dealing with this all around the city. And he said, the problem is when you are trying to operate an air conditioner in a very humid environment, then it, it's not like if you're trying to do it in a dry heat, for instance, like in a Phoenix or a Tucson kind of thing. He said, you know, you've got the, the humidity affects the ability of the air conditioner to cool the air because of the moisture in the air. So if the air outside, which is where the intake is coming in for the air, is has a lot of moisture attached to it. It's more difficult to get the air to be cooler. And he said, so what it means is they can turn it down to 72, but they actually, if they keep it too cold, they actually run the risk of freezing out the unit because the unit is working so hard to get down to that temperature. But in the meantime, it's fighting the exterior temperature that's in the moisture in the air outside that could be you know, in the high 80s, 90s, even the 100 temperatures. And then you've got a humidity content that's like 80%. And so he said, what you have to understand is they're better off trying to lower the temperature to something that is a little bit, you know, 10, 15, 20 degrees different than what's outside. But when they're trying to lower it sometimes to 30 or 40 degrees lower than what it may be outside, they're not gonna get that. And they're making the air conditioner work a lot harder. And they're also spending a lot more money. My tenants were paying for their own electric. So he said, and they're also running their electric a lot more and they're paying more money to not necessarily have a cooler apartment. So if they were to set it closer to the high 70s, they'd get something a lot closer to that and they'd be using a lot less electricity 
So their electric bill would go down and they'd be using the unit in a much more effective way. So as he was explaining all this to me, I said, what accounts for this? And he said to me, well, it's always been that way. Most people just don't know it, you know, because of the mechanics and the, you know, how it works with the relationship to the atmosphere. He said, but it's become a bigger issue since climate change. When you hear your heating and air conditioning guy say to you, well, it's happening more because of climate change. It's again, it's like having your insurance guy just like wave this information in your face and say, <laughs> you can't deny it's happening because I have to deal with it every day in my job. You know, so it really makes you pay attention because it's there's nothing, there's no political political aspect to it, there's no religious aspect to it, there's no economic aspect of it, other than they're making more money when you know having to go out on more service calls, but they're being less able to satisfy their customer because they can't give them the results that they want. So it still all comes down to the fact that when you have these very down-to-earth individuals in their down-to-earth professions talking to you about the reality of something you thought was some abstract concept mm -hmm. and realizing it's very real and it's affecting my bottom line. That was why I had to write the book because I would go to conferences or I'd be talking to other real estate investors or I'd be talking to my consulting clients and they'd say, well, how are you managing your investments in light of climate change? And people would stare at me like they had no idea what I was talking about. Or they'd say what I had said before. Well, that's like decades off, right? And I'd be like, no, it's happening now in different ways. And they would look like I literally was speaking a foreign language because they had, as of yet, no real understanding of how it could affect their investments. So that was why I realized I was meeting so many medium size and, and new investors and young investors and realizing that they did not have these facts and they didn't have the slightest idea how to get them. And so I wanted to put it into some kind of very easily digestible, essentially checklist of ways to understand the industries associated and how to be able to make your risk assessment, your due diligence more effective. Absolutely. And that's a perfect reason and much appreciated by me and I'm sure many others. So um, I guess on that note, I have one more question for the lightning round. What advice would you have for someone who's considering starting to or considering writing a book? Oh, that's an interesting question. So Ben, I would say that the first thing is know your subject. Know it well enough to feel comfortable that if anybody on the street were to come up and start to chat with you about it, that not only would you be able to chat with them about it, but you love chatting with about it with them about it. It's, uh, you know, as you and I have talked about, you know, uh, before a little bit earlier, even when you're getting your education in something, when you're when you're going out seeking new employment or you're looking for a new kind of um, avenue for investment or you're looking to expand your entrepreneurial reach, you're always going to be more, more effective at it if you care about what you're talking about, writing about, you know, spending your day on. Because the more you care about it, the more interesting and exciting and relevant it feels to you the easier it is to spend the time so that the I'm a big person who believes in working smarter, not harder. I don't want to trudge through my day. I don't think of life as a journey. I think of life as an adventure. And so adventures are fun. Journeys are arduous. So, so my thing is everything you do, make it an adventure. So it's fun. And the next step always feels like an exciting revelation. And so I feel the same way about writing. You know, whether I'm writing blogs, whether writing, you know, articles for clients and that kind of a thing. I write for bigger pockets also. In, write about the things you love, write about the things you enjoy, because if you do, it makes the day feel like it just runs by, like it just races. 
and it makes being, you know, a part of whatever you're doing that much more joyful. Mm -hmm. That's a great, great advice. And I appreciate that. I think that even if you're not writing a book, most people could take that to heart. So I appreciate it. Um, You ready for the lightning round? Okay. I'm ready for the lightning round. Go for it. Sweet. What superpower would you want if you could choose any superpower? Um, Though it seems a little intimidating knowing what I know about climate change, I would like the ability to be able to see the future. Mm. (laughs) That's great. What is your favorite book or what's the one that's helped you the most? I guess can't choose fearless, but. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, my favorite book has remained my favorite book for decades, which is uh, East of Eden by John Steinbeck. Mm. And the, you know, just the simple reasons behind it is it's an intergenerational story of a family and, and it, it goes beyond that to business. It goes beyond that to how our ideas about who we are, where we've come from and where we're going can evolve. And we don't have to be who we come from and we don't have to, we don't have to follow the path of the future that someone else lays out for us. We can follow our own choices. We can make our own decisions about who we are in the present and who we will be. Beautifully said, and that's going to be the next one on my list because I just finished The Alchemist. Ah, okay, there you go. Interesting, yeah, that nice a nice fold in. I think you'll find. Mm-hmm. Great. So, what motivates you to continue every day? What motivates me to continue every day? Um, curiosity, I think. I, I'm I'm ever curious. I and I am a I am a relentless innovator. When I find out information about something, I try to find ways to be able to maximize that knowledge to improve the lives of my clients, my tenants, um, you know, uh, my my children. Um, yeah, anybody that I care about and feel can benefit from the knowledge. And um, and I I think for me, never never letting go of learning is the most powerful tool that any of us have because knowledge is power, and it allows us to make the most effective and priceless decisions in our life. Great. So what advice would you give to someone who has to follow in your footsteps? Um, never stop reading, never stop researching, never stop listening to the next podcast, to, to watching the next documentary, never stop opening your mind to the things you know nothing about, because the minute you start to pay attention to something you know nothing about, it becomes something that you know a lot about. And the, I think the most important thing that any of us can remember is no matter how much we think we know, whenever we think we know it all, we really can assume that we don't know very much at all. So always assuming that there's more to get, more to learn, more to understand. And that's probably the most effective thing that, that I would offer to anybody. Great. And um, one of my, uh, I guess, one of my mentors is uh, Socrates, who says he doesn't know, he doesn't know anything at all, but he knows he knows more than you, but. Yes, the the real knowledge is knowledge of ignorance and that we're never going to know everything, but all we can do is try and learn more and continue to to grow. Um, so definitely take that to heart and defines my 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 life journey as well. So last question is since I put you on the spot, I want to give you a chance for re- revenge. So what's one question uh, you have for me? Okay, what question would I have for you? Um okay, the, the, this is a pretty simple one in terms of not necessarily requiring a lot of thought, because you know where you are in your own space with it right now, but if you were to right now at this point in your life, um, choose the uh, the real estate 
sector that you'd be most interested in, which one would that be? Yeah, that's that's easy for me. Um, maybe it shouldn't be so easy, but I have a pretty simple explanation for why I believe it's the correct choice. And that would be multifamily because I have a strong intuition, a hunch maybe you could say, that in 60 years and 50 years, people are going to still want to have a roof over their head and they're not going to want to sleep out in the rain or the cold or the extreme heat. <laughs> so my bet is that no matter what people, where people decide they want to work from home, from the office, whatnot, no matter where people decide if they want to shop online or in person, or, you know, we don't want malls anymore. We want, we want flying malls. Who knows? All I know is that people are going to want to have a roof over their head when they sleep. I'm willing to make a large bet on that. I'm will, will, willing to bet the house on that, right? So <laughs> I would, uh, that's where I would say if I had to pick one, it would be multifamily. But in the short term and in other time frames, there's a lot of interesting trends going on um, that I like to examine as well that might not be as as known um, and might represent some less less uh, comp less competition in the opportunity. But um, my principle in which I'm operating is I'm 21 years older, 21 year, years old at the moment. So my strategy, and I think everyone's strategy should be instead of trying to time the market, I'm trying to generate my wealth by time in market. And I think that multifamily will win in the long run. That, and I think that's very wise. And you're right. It's not so, matter, it's so, not so much the aspect of timing when to be in the market. It's a matter of thinking how to be in the market and what you what you what you're doing with uh, with the explanation you gave me is giving me a complete and literate understanding of the fact that yes, people will always need a roof over their head. They won't always need an office to go to. We're proving that, and the pandemic pushed that that forward. But they will always need a roof over their head, and you're absolutely correct. Multifamily is a wonderful way to go, and I advise it. Spent been many years in multifamily as well as some other sectors, but I, I definitely always come back to multifamily because it's true. People always need a place to live. Great, and I'm excited for for that future for for both of us. Um, well, Brooke, it's been an incredible pleasure. This is an incredibly important topic, incredibly complicated topic that we've that you've helped us distill into simple and actionable and understandable terms. So I appreciate that very much. Obviously there's a lot more to learn. If you can go to fear to, you know, BL Sheldon fearless, uh, got the book at Amazon, um, okay. nice soft cover too. Um, but where else can people find you, um, and connect with you, whether they're interested in learning more about real estate and, and about climate change, but also if there's other services that, that you offer that, you know, might be of interest. Oh, well, thank you for that, Ben. Yes, you can find Fearless Real Estate Investing in the Era of Climate Change on Amazon. And you can find it as you do in the, you have it in the soft cover. You can get it in, in Kindle. You can also get it in Audible. Um, but then also, in addition to that, you can go to my website, Real Estate Trend Shark, where I focus primarily on real estate. You can look at my articles on Bigger Pockets. Also, you go to momentscount.com. That's my consulting firm. And um, I, I always love taking on new clients with new challenges, whatever they may be. So um, I would I appreciate that. I'd love to be able to see uh, people who are interested in real estate or also just wanting to take their, their business and the understanding and management of their businesses into new directions. I always enjoy taking on new clients. Of course. Well, um, I encourage everyone to... to check out all the all the resources and and connect with Brooke and um Brooke and everyone listening keep making milestones
Before you go, I just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to another awesome episode of Real Estate Milestones. If you've been enjoying the show and you'd like to offer your support, please leave a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to increase the show's visibility and help the message get out to a greater audience. I really appreciate your time and support, and keep making milestones. The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts.